0: hello and welcome to taking the lead a podcast from the radiology leadership institute that profiles radiologists as leaders seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences i'm jeff rubin Today I'm speaking with Dr. Cynthia Sherry a private practice radiologist with fellowship training in magnetic resonance imaging, who since 1989 has been a member of Radiology Associates of North Texas, practicing exclusively at Presbyterian Hospital Dallas, a 700-bed tertiary care level one trauma center community hospital. Her career is marked by diverse leadership positions within the hospital and hospital system, her radiology group, and at local, state, and national physician organization levels. She is a proponent of the principle that physicians' clinical experiences supplemented by leadership training uniquely equip them to approach healthcare problems innovatively and with fiscal stewardship in ways that can benefit both patients and society. She has been instrumental in promoting leadership education for physicians both in her hospital and hospital system and nationally as president of the American College of Physician Executives and the founding chair and medical director of the Radiology Leadership Institute of the ACR. In recognition of her many contributions, particularly in the training of physician leaders, Dr. Sherry will be recognized next month with the RLI's Leadership Luminary Award, the highest honor bestowed by the RLI and the first awardee so recognized in the past five years. Cindy, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's really good to be here with you today.
0: Tell us about your earliest days. Where were you born and raised?
1: Well, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. My father worked for Mobile Oil And he was transferred around the country quite a bit with the company. So we lived in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Colorado before we finally ended up in Texas. And I stayed in Texas, but they moved on. Some of my best childhood memories were in Duluth, Minnesota. And we lived close to Lake Superior, just a couple blocks up the hill from the lake. Some good memories from Denver area also.
0: How old were you when you landed in Dallas?
1: I was in middle school. So about the eighth grade.
0: And then from the eighth grade on, Dallas has been your home?
1: Dallas was home. Yeah, I pretty much always found everything I ever needed in my own backyard and didn't really stray very far after that.
0: So up until middle school, you mentioned you were moving around a lot. How frequently were you changing cities?
1: Probably every two to four years we would move. You know, the early years, I don't have a lot of memories about, but the middle school years and then getting into high school, I remember it quite a bit.
0: How would you say that influenced your upbringing? Did you find it affecting how you were able to hold and maintain friendships and the sorts of things that you did during your free time?
1: I guess it does affect one quite a bit when you pull up roots and move every couple of years. Maybe that's why I never really wanted to leave Dallas once I had the choice to stay where I was planted. But there are good things that come from that. Because I thoroughly enjoyed living in the other parts of the country and having those experiences. Like all the ski slopes in the Denver area, we'd go up every weekend as a family and ski. And I learned to ski in Denver. And I have great memories of Lake Superior, the smelting, foghorns at all hours of the day and night. It was just a really wonderful and beautiful place to live. We skated a lot. There was hockey all around and just a real fun time. I have great memories of all the places that we lived.
0: Sounds like you really carry a real positive sense from your childhood. How about brothers and sisters? Did you have them?
1: I do. I have six brothers and one sister. And just to tell you a little bit about my family, my dad, he was like a superhero. (laughs) I guess everybody looks at their dad that way, but he was a big man and he was very athletic and competitive and he was a winner at just about anything he ever tried to do. And I was raised in the time of our country when women weren't really encouraged to do a lot. But because I had six brothers, I kind of got to sit on the sidelines and watch my father raise these wonderful six boys to be kind, but also to be aggressive and competitive and to be winners. And a lot of the right from wrong things that I think I learned from my dad and watching him teach my brothers. So it was kind of an interesting way to learn some of life's lessons.
0: Yeah. Now, where are you in the birth order?
1: I'm the oldest daughter, and I'm the second oldest. And my oldest brother has actually passed away, and so now I am at the top of the birth order and actually the matriarch in the whole clan. So... That's a really weird position to be in. I never thought I'd be the oldest one in the family, but I am.
0: (laughs) And what is the age separation from oldest to youngest?
1: Probably about 12 years, maybe 14 years. I've never really actually figured it out.
0: Wow. I mean, a family of eight is a really impressively large family. And to be moving around like that.
1: It really is, I have to tell you. And being the oldest daughter... When I first got married, I said, I never want to have kids. Been there, done that. I've raised kids. I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) Because a lot of the home economics and raising the kids and looking after them and babysitting, I did a whole lot of that as a youngster.
0: Yeah, I can well imagine. You know, I can't help but think about that movie, Yours, Mine, and Ours, where the household had to be so organized and regimented to keep everybody on time and doing what they needed to do. And with all the moves that you had, I can well imagine how the older siblings took on a lot of responsibility for the younger ones just to be able to manage so much activity.
1: Yeah, we just had to. And I have to say, when I graduated high school and was finally able to move out of the house and go to college, I was. Really happy. You know, I really felt like a caged lion, and I was just so happy to get out of the house and be independent and on my own and kind of put some of that behind me. I'm also
0: interested in the dynamic that you expressed of a lot of your father's focus toward essentially leadership development as a dad being directed to the boys and that you were a little bit more in the background. Can you talk a little bit about that and how did that make you feel? Were you comfortable in that position or did you feel somehow like you were potentially missing out on opportunities?
1: At times it was uncomfortable and at other times it felt just fine. I always felt like I could listen and learn and watch and that I was still getting the lesson, but the pressure to perform and actually do what he was telling us to do, I got out of that part of it. I guess it was really my mother who instilled the confidence in me to move forward. And ultimately I entered what was at that point in time, a male dominated field. And I felt comfortable there and felt like I was part of the brotherhood, so to speak.
0: I'm glad you mentioned your mother. I was going to ask you about the role that she played in the family. It sounded like your dad was a larger than life figure. And how about your mom? I imagine that with eight kids, she was probably running the household most of the time.
1: Most of the time she did, however, when we moved to Dallas, she's a nurse, she was an RN, she went back to work and she was one of the nursing supervisors at Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas, which is ultimately where I had my full career. And she got me a job there one summer working as a nurse's aide, and I loved it. I loved the hospital. I loved being part of the healthcare field, and I always wanted to come back to Dallas and be a physician at Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas. So I ultimately got my wish, and in large part, I have to thank my mom because she was really very supportive and encouraging. And if we end up talking about my educational pathway, you'll see that it wasn't direct, I had to take a few detours to get where I wanted to go, but it was in large part thanks to her. She encouraged me and supported me and was a real strong and powerful influence.
0: I want to ask you a little bit about things that you were able to do outside the home when you were growing up. Did you have any hobbies or activities that you pursued outside of school and the home that really marked your childhood?
1: In childhood, I would say it was skiing mostly and skating. We lived in some cold environments and we loved to be outdoors, hiking. We didn't travel a lot because there were so many people in the family. But when we were in Duluth, we would travel up to Canada and do the outdoorsy things up there. And I have a whole slew of activities that I enjoy doing. I've played piano ever since I was a youngster. I love music, almost all kinds. I can't get pinned down and say, what's my favorite? And for the piano, it's one of those things that comes and goes and spurts, but I still will sit down at the piano and play it. We have a beautiful, old, refurbished Steinway piano that's just gorgeous. I'm also a pretty good pool player, believe it or not. When I was in college, one of my favorite activities was to go down to the student union and kind of mingle with those guys and drink a beer or two and shoot pool. And I got to be really pretty good at it. So that was fun. And I like to golf. I like to be outdoors. I like that level of intellectual commitment, activity, being with other people, meeting new people out on the golf course, go to beautiful places around the world and play golf, I really do enjoy that. I shoot about 100. I'd love to break 100, but I rarely do that. But it's fun.
0: Wow, sounds like a lot of rich activities. Did you have an opportunity to work outside the home before you entered college?
1: Yes. I can't think of a period in my life when I didn't have a job. If you can imagine a household with eight children, there wasn't a lot of discretionary money. And if I wanted to have a new outfit, I had to make my own money and buy my own clothes. So, you know, there's a lot of jobs. I think one of my first ones that I remember very well was I worked in the candy department at Sears, sold candy and popcorn. And it was just me and the department manager. And she was an older woman. And we forged a wonderful friendship and I worked there for years. It was a great job. I also worked in the healthcare field. I think I already told you I was a nurse's aide for a while and a phlebotomist for a while at some of the local hospitals. I'd get up real early in the morning, go to the hospital, do the blood draws, and then go to school. I worked in a laboratory at Breckenridge Hospital in Austin when I was in college. So I always had a job, but there's a big variety of them. Always doing something I enjoyed doing and meeting the other people that were there. I liked that part of it. And of course, the money was good.
0: What do you recall being your first experience as a leader? Did you take on any leadership roles within high school?
1: No, not really. I don't think that being a leader was something that ever appealed to me. And maybe it's because I didn't ever view leadership as one step leading to another one and building a career. I always thought of leadership more in terms of servant leadership, looking out there and seeing what the needs are and what can I do to fix this, make it better, improve it. Maybe my lack of leadership roles early on has more to do with what I view as the leader's role, what is their purpose, and why would I want to spend my time doing this?
0: Let's talk a little bit about your education. You mentioned that it wasn't always a straight path. Tell us a little bit about going to college and your journey through education.
1: I would say my journey actually began in high school. I was at Richardson High School in Dallas, and I as a ninth grader, just decided that the quality of education there was lackluster. The social environment at that high school was precarious. And I just decided on my own, I was going to put in an application to Ursuline Academy in Dallas, and I wanted to change schools. And lo and behold, believe it or not, I got accepted to Ursuline Academy. And so I told my mom and dad, I'm going to go to Ursuline. And they're like, you're what? They were so surprised because I didn't know how I was going to get there every day. It was expensive. And they were like, I didn't know you were interested in school. And I was like, yes, I am. And so, you know, thanks to them, they kind of bent over backwards and they made it happen. And I went to Ursuline Academy and graduated from there. And of course, that's an all-girls school. And I think that that had a big impact on my feelings of being independent and standing alone and actually having a future. When it was time to go to college, I made an application to one school. It was University of Texas at Austin. It was the only place I wanted to go. If you have any idea of how competitive it is to get into UT Austin, you just wouldn't believe that I only applied to one school, but I did and I went there and the rest is kind of history. But when I got there, I was so happy to be out of the house and have my independence that school became kind of secondary and the social life in Austin and all of the things that that city had to offer really kind of pushed school to the back burner for me. You know, my childhood dreams of being a doctor and the big, hairy, audacious goal that I had as a child was that I wanted to be a child psychiatrist and open a hospital for autistic children. And that was just like my dream as a child. But after my freshman year at Austin, I just decided, well, medical school is really not in the works for me. I just can't do it. So I was a major in psychology at that point in time. And probably toward the end of my second year, I had an epiphany that I would never get a job anywhere as a psychologist with just a BA in psychology. So I decided to go to nursing school. And I ended up going down to Galveston for the clinical years in nursing school. And while there, realized, I don't want to be a nurse. I really, really want to be a doctor. So I ended up with a BA in psychology, and all my nursing credits were counted as electives toward that degree. And I went back home and I said, Mom and Dad, please, I know you've already sent me to college for four years, but I really want to go to medical school and give it a try. And it's going to take me two more years to get all the prerequisites. So I moved back into the house with mom and dad and went to the University of Texas at Dallas, which was just a couple of blocks away from me. And it was brand new at that point in time. They only had lower division undergraduate classes. And so I just slipped right in there. I got all my prerequisites. I made really good grades. I was dedicated. I made a great score on the MCAT. And I applied to medical school. And in Texas, there's like six state schools. And my first choice was UT Southwestern here in Dallas. And I got in and I was just so happy I was over the moon. So that's kind of my circuitous route to medical school in a nutshell.
0: That's a great story and a great retelling of it. It's interesting how you felt liberated in going to Austin. And that was a real positive feeling that you had. But then after moving back in, when it came... To decide where to go to medical school, you chose to remain in Dallas at UT Southwestern. Were you concerned that being so close to the home and all your siblings and the family's needs, that that might distract you from medical education?
1: After I was accepted to medical school, I moved back out, got my own place and lived with some of the other students. So I was kind of back on my own after that. So no, I wasn't worried about the family at that point in time. I really felt like UT Southwestern was where I wanted to go. I had a number of mentors already that I knew from that school, and it's just what I wanted to do, and it worked out great.
0: How had you developed those mentorship relationships prior to beginning?
1: There was a neighbor just up the street, and I was a babysitter for his children, and he was on the faculty at UT Southwestern. He just said, Cindy, whatever I can do to help you, I will. So he kind of took me under his wing, introduced me to people, helped arrange interviews for me. He was just a really positive influence on my pathway to UT Southwestern.
0: You mentioned that during childhood and entering college, Child psychiatry was the strong interest, but of course, to all of our benefit, you became a radiologist. What led you to decide to pursue radiology?
1: A couple of things. Probably the most important influential deciding factor was when I took an elective in pulmonary medicine. It seemed to me it was really obvious that all the questions were answered in the radiology department. You could look at an x-ray, you could tell where somebody was raised and what he did for a living and whether or not he was a smoker and what the background of his health conditions even were. I was just so awed and amazed at what radiologists could tell us, especially in the pulmonary. And so I did a couple of rotations, one in Parkland, where Southwestern is, and the other was at Baylor University Medical Center, which is in Dallas, and it's a private practice hospital, really. And what a wonderful radiology department they had, and I loved it there. It was just like, once I was introduced to it, the technology appealed to me, being a doctor's doctor appealed to me the ability to solve questions and problems like radiology does. It was just the cat's meow to me. It was wonderful. I loved it. So my mother was a little bit disappointed and she had the feeling that I wasn't a real doctor, but I have to say I've never had a single regret. I loved my career in radiology.
0: You mentioned your positive exposure to Baylor and it was so influential that that's where you ultimately went for your residency and your fellowship. Did you consider looking beyond Dallas at this point at all or were you so enamored with what you saw at Baylor that that was really your target?
1: Well my target was to stay in Dallas. I got married in my third year of medical school and my husband was in the foothills of his career really and it didn't make sense for both of us to pick up and move and start all over again when we had such good resources here in the Dallas area. So my game plan was to apply to both of the radiology programs in the Dallas area. One was at Baylor and the other one was at Parkland. And if I didn't get into either one of those, I was going to be a surgeon because I felt like the surgery pyramid was going to play to my advantage. I could go into a surgery program without any problems. Surgery was my second choice anyway. So who knows what I would have done after that if I hadn't matched with Baylor. Baylor was definitely my first choice, and I'm really glad I matched there. And I have to say it was because of the relationships that I built at Baylor while there on elective. You wouldn't think you could do that in just four weeks, but they had a great group of residents There were four at each level of the residency program. They had a great staff, a great program director. You mingled with the staff. I got to know all of them very well. It was a real positive experience, and I'm just very pleased that I was able to go there.
0: That's marvelous. Now, after fellowship, you settled into community practice at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas with what was at the time Southwest Imaging and Interventional Specialist and is now Radiology Associates of North Texas, where you've been practicing radiology since 1989. I imagine that you've seen a lot of changes in these past 33 years.
1: Yeah, I have to say the timing for becoming a radiologist when I did was absolutely marvelous. As a resident, Baylor got the first magnet. If you can imagine CT scans when I was maybe a second year resident, if you were waiting at the console for a CT image to pop up, it took about 20 minutes. So you'd sit there 20 minutes at a time waiting for the image to pop up ultrasound was still basically b-scale we got one of the first portable units at baylor and it was a giant and we would push this great big machine down the hallways of baylor to go to l and d or wherever they needed us to go so the transitions that you've seen well in mammography ultrasonography ct scans mri is just tremendous over my career it's been a lot of fun trying to stay up with it I think I did a pretty good job in my first 10 years of practice, but after that it got harder and harder.
0: Now, your uh, fellowship was in MRI. To what extent did you and were you able to focus on MRI when you transitioned into practice?
1: My decision to do a fellowship in MRI came about kind of through the back door. When I finished my training in residency, there really were not any good practice opportunities in the Dallas area. And again, I constrained myself to Dallas So it was, you know, take a suboptimal job somewhere or do a fellowship. And the fellowships in MRI were really just getting up off the ground. In fact, I think I was probably the third MRI fellow at Baylor. And Steve Harms was at Baylor and he ran the MRI section. And he was a really cool guy. He was fun to talk to, he was fun to get to know, he was brilliant, a real down to earth kind of a guy. And I just decided. I'm gonna embrace this new technology and I'm gonna spend a year with Steve Harms. And it was a great choice because I loved the technology, I loved the physics of it. We had a Technicare scanner back then and you didn't just put in the protocol and push go, you had to put in the TE, you had to put in the TR, you had to put in the angles, you had to put in every little detail. And with somebody like Steve Harms helping me to learn how to do that, I knew that machine inside and out. It was a terrific year. It was also the year that we adopted our daughter, Sarah. But anyway, a lot of stuff happened. And when that year was over, I had to take a job at a community hospital that was kind of far from my house. And after about six months of practice, I really wasn't very happy there. It just didn't dovetail very well with my training, I didn't think. It was kind of a jack-of-all-trades kind of thing, and I felt like a specialist. And at that point in time, Presbyterian Hospital was getting their first magnet, and they wanted to hire somebody with MRI fellowship. So one of the radiologists from my residency knew Paul Ellenbogen at Presbyterian Hospital, and he said, hey, I've got the great candidate for you guys to consider. So he introduced me to Paul Ellenbogen, and that's how I ended up getting the job over there at Presbyterian Hospital. Tell us a
0: bit about the group at the time you joined. What was its size and what was its scope?
1: The group was small. I was maybe the sixth or seventh member of the group at that time, and it was called Dallas Radiologists, PA, and they only worked there in Presbyterian Hospital. It was a body imaging group. Neuro wasn't included. There was a separate group doing neuroradiology at that hospital. I think I was the second woman to have worked in that practice. And I think the first experience didn't go very well. She didn't stay very long and they didn't say a lot of complimentary things. So I think I came into the practice with them expecting me to fail or to not be accepted. But I remember interviewing with the group falling in love with it. And as I told you before, it was always my dream to work there. I wanted to be there. They took me out to dinner, you know, the wine and dine that you do when you're being recruited. And there's me and six other men sitting around the dining table at Royal Oaks Country Club. And the group chairman at that time was a dashing, tall, silver-toothed Texan with a twang. And he said, I bet you feel a little bit uncomfortable here at the table with these men. And I was like, no, not really. I grew up with six boys in my family. I'm not nervous at all. So y'all relax and I'm relaxed. <laughs> anyway, it was a great experience. I really was so pleased to join that practice. And the first day I walked in there, I just felt like I'm home. Here I am. I was the first person that they took on that was really a specialist, except maybe Paul Ellen Bogan, who had specialized in ultrasonography in his training. So I brought a new expertise to that group. I helped them per their magnets. We ended up with a joint venture with the hospital and opened up a fabulous imaging center that had four magnets and a couple of CT scanners, a big mammography suite, ultrasound. It was really quite a lot of fun professionally to be involved in that endeavor.
0: Were you on the partnership track from the start?
1: Yes. Yes, I was. In fact, that was probably why it was so hard for me to get a job out of training. I had been moonlighting with another group in the Dallas area every weekend in the Plano area, and I really thought that that was the practice I would join. I'd go up there and work for them every weekend, fill in a week here or there when they needed coverage for vacations. But when I finished my training and kind of looked to them, hey, I'm ready to join a practice. They said, oh, yeah, we love you. You've done a great job. We want you to join our practice. Here's the deal. You work Monday through Friday, no weekends, no nights. We'll pay you a handsome salary. I said, well, what's the partnership track like? And they said, well, no, 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 no partnership track. I said, well, why not? Well, we really want you to work in our outpatient office. We really want you to work these great hours. Well, it turns out that they just didn't want any women in their partnership. And I just said, you know, thanks, you guys. I mean, this is a very attractive offer and it's plenty of money, but I won't have any say in how you build your practice, what we look like as a business. You know, after all this training, I just can't go into a situation where I'm just an employee. And I know that's a very attractive picture model for some people, but at that point in my career, it felt like a slap in the face. So I just didn't join that group and ultimately ended up at Presbyterian, so maybe it was a good thing anyway.
0: Absolutely. It sounds like it. And effectively, you were the first woman joining that practice, at least who stayed for a substantial period of time. And in looking at the website for the practice recently, there's over 200 radiologists as a part of it. I mean, it's amazing how much the practice has grown.
1: Yes, it is amazing. And I have to say that in my years with Dallas Radiology, PA, Those were the formative years, and my focus really was on becoming a good radiologist in a private practice setting building my clinical skills, building a network with the referring physicians in our practice. I remember at one point in time when our imaging center was really just getting off the ground, it was connected to the hospital by a long hallway. And I'd stand outside the back door in the hallway and greet doctors as they would walk by and say, don't you have any patients to send me? It sounds kind of funny, but really all it really was, was a way to get to know them and to build the reputation as a service organization to the people that were going to refer to us. Eventually, it got so busy, I never had the time to stand out in the hallway and just greet doctors as they walked by.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, understandable. So, you know, it was a small practice when you joined. Interestingly, it sounds like the positioning of you being the MRI leader from the get-go and the desire to grow and build put you in a leadership position right from the start.
1: That's true. They depended on me a lot for establishing the safety parameters for the magnet. I put all of the protocols into the machines when we got them. In fact, I have to tell you, some of the protocols are still there that I put in from way back when. So, yeah, it was a great time and it was kind of a launch pad because I ended up on the management committee for the imaging center for many years And helped to build it from what initially was a small imaging center that did basically radiography and fluoro to something that was huge and really a highly respected, high quality imaging center in the Dallas area. It still is today.
0: I think about five years after you're starting in the practice, you became a managing partner in the imaging center. During that intervening period, those first five years, when you were effectively leading MRI for the group and were doing all the things that you just described in terms of protocols and patient safety and such, did you have any formal title? And if not, Did that trouble you? Did you feel like you needed or deserve that recognition? Or, you know, were you just fine just doing the work, playing the role without necessarily the title?
1: No, not having the leadership position or title didn't bother me one bit. I feel like you can be a leader without having the title. And in fact, sometimes it frees you up to not have the title to be a better and more effective leader. Plus, you know, I have to say, I was kind of in the shadow of Paul Ellen Bogan. He was a mentor to me for many, many, many years. And he walked ahead of me for many years. And I learned a lot by being with him and following in his footsteps. He did a lot in the department. He did a lot for the group. He did a lot in our hospital. And when he was department chair, I was vice chair. So I was kind of in his shadow for many, many years and actually to my benefit because I learned a lot from him and he was a good mentor and good sponsor.
0: Can you recall any particular lessons or vignettes where you just sort of stepped back and said, wow, Paul, thank you. That was really amazing.
1: One thing comes to mind, I haven't thought of this in a long time, but I said, Paul, why do you want me to do this? He wanted me to do some job or be on some committee. And I said, Paul, really, why do you want me to do this? Why don't you ask so-and-so to do it? He said, no, Cindy, this group has completely different expectations of you than we do of so-and-so. I said, hmm, okay, I have to go think about that. But it actually caused me to think about myself and the pathway that I was on and what his expectations were as a mentor. So in that small vignette, I think it kind of lit a fire under me to think bigger. So I thank him for that.
0: I want to return to some of your leadership roles within the hospital and the health system in a little bit, but I can't help but notice that right around the time that you were formally recognized as a managing partner of the Imaging Center, you began an affiliation with the American College of Physician Executives, which is currently the American Association of Physician Leadership. In fact, Peter Angood was our guest last month on the podcast. How did you hear about the ACPE and what led you to commit to it? with lifetime membership at that point.
1: It's kind of a circuitous story, but I was assigned or invited to participate on a Aetna Utilization Review Committee by an OBGYN doctor, Ralph Turner was his name. You know, this was right at a time when managed care was just beginning to come down the pike and all kinds of new terms and new insurance mechanisms were being put into play. And I sat on this Aetna Utilization Review Committee with Ralph and a few other people across the community, and it was like a foreign language to me. I was just in over my head. I couldn't contribute. I couldn't understand what was going on. And Ralph, he was also quite a mentor for me. He just said, you know, you can learn about these things on your own, or you can take a few courses and really get up on the learning curve. So he's the one who recommended to me that I go to ACPE and kind of get the fundamentals of the business of medicine. So I did. I absolutely fell in love with the organization ACPE. The first year I went there, their president was Barbara Laturno. She's an emergency room physician up in Minnesota. And I remember sitting out there in the audience thinking, if this national organization has a woman as its president, it must be for me. And I took all of their fundamental courses and I learned a great deal. I made friends all around the country. I got to know their faculty it helped me a lot to just kind of figure out where medicine was going at that particular point in time and where I might fit into it, where radiology fit into it. And I was a little bit of an outsider as a radiologist at those meetings. There were very few radiologists, and a lot of those physicians would look at me and say, Why are you here? as if we didn't have a role. But as I'm sure you and I agree, radiology has a huge role in the economics of healthcare. Ultimately, I ended up finishing Master's of Medical Management at Carnegie Mellon University through my relationships with the ACPE, and that was a really terrific educational experience. Again, made friends across this country that I still have today. It's wonderful to make those widespread connections because you can always pick up the phone and find out what's going on in another part of the country or just get input from somebody who might have a different perspective on a similar challenge. So I really enjoyed that part of my education.
0: Yeah, so it seems that initially there was a certificate in medical management that the ACPE provided after you had completed all those requirements. Talk a little bit about the decision to continue on and engage with Carnegie Mellon. What was the connection with ACPE? And Carnegie Mellon being in Pittsburgh, did you actually go to Pittsburgh to attend classes there?
1: Yes, it was a real busy time in my life. Carnegie Mellon University accepted ACPE coursework as the prerequisites to their program in Master's in Medical Management. And there were other programs available as an option at that Time like at Tulane, which was closer. Part of me says, Why didn't I do that? Because their focus was on population health and epidemiology, and of course, that became such a big thing. But Carnegie Mellon's was more on privacy, security, the technical computer aspects of how to keep health information private. And I thought that that was a more important focus from my perspective. And so, yes, we had to do four. 10-day stints at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh in the one year that took me to finish this up. And it was a great time. It was like going back to college or something. We stayed in the university hotel, and we were a cohort of about 30 people. We had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. I mean, it was really a fun time. It was a great educational experience and a lot of fun, but boy, I was busy. Back home, there were weekends when I never even got out of my pajamas. I would just sit at my computer and doing my homework. And it was just a really busy time. But I'm glad I did it.
0: What competencies, you know, looking back, would you say you gained from that formal educational experience that have served you the most or that you've reached toward in your subsequent career?
1: I think clearly just the fundamentals were the most valuable thing for me because, as you know, in traditional medical curricula, we don't get any of that. So to me, it was a brand new language, a brand new world. It broadened my horizons tremendously, just the way I looked at things and tried to figure out how all the pieces fit together. I think the fundamentals were important, but also this was right on the cusp of things like emotional intelligence that was something new to me at that particular point in time. So that was interesting. And some of the personality surveys were interesting and valuable in many ways. I'm an introvert with a capital I, but that doesn't mean I can't, you know, work a room pretty well if I want to. But, you know, you learn something about yourself and how to manage the stress that, you know, putting yourself out of the comfort zone can do.
0: Shortly after getting your degree, you joined the ACPE's board of directors and ultimately rising to become the president of the ACPE. And that is a remarkable accomplishment. But I imagine also a huge commitment of time and effort. What led to your selection as president of the ACPE?
1: When I joined the board at ACPE, there was never any thought that I was going to become president. You know, Once again, this is kind of characteristic of my leadership path is that I'm not trying to build a resume or go from one particular appointment to another thinking it's going to lead to something bigger. It just so happened that way. And I guess it had to do a lot with the people I had come to know, the other people on the board, because there was a lot of mentorship and sponsorship that pushed me into that Particular role. And it was a pivotal time for that organization. Peter and Good addressed it a little bit in his podcast, but I was president of that organization at a point in time when the founding CEO, Roger Schenke, was stepping down. So he had led that organization for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, something like that. And he was very charismatic. He was controlling, almost tyrannical sometimes about that organization because he loved it so deeply. As president of the board and the other board members agreed with me on this, we felt like it was really important to make a clean break, that for this organization to succeed and change with the times and grow with the times, we had to phase Roger out bring in somebody new, set the stage for the transition, the transformation of ACPE. And it was very tumultuous. It was very difficult for Roger. He was angry at many times because we excluded him from the conversations. We didn't want him to be in charge of or control whoever the new CEO was and thereby continue controlling from the grave, so to speak, the direction that ACPE took. So, It was a very difficult leadership role to take, moving that organization from one leadership style to another one. So ultimately, I chaired the search for a new CEO. I tried to handle Roger with kid gloves so that he knew that we loved him, but he also knew that he wasn't going to be part of this transformation. We ended up selecting an interim CEO. And he was a former board chair of ACPE. And he just did a tremendous job for about three years, just taking care of the organization as Roger phased out and setting the stage for the next CEO. So then I was also part of the search committee that selected Peter Angood. And I have to say that turned out great, right? he's been there for 10 years. He's made a lot of changes. He's grown the organization in many ways and expanded it. And I feel very gratified that he has done such a good job with it.
0: Wow, Cindy, it's amazing the responsibility that you carried for that organization and the successful transition you were able to effect while also leading your practice and having so many other responsibilities. And it really is remarkable to think about what you said about the rarity of radiologists in the organization. And yet when it came time to pick the leader to realize this transition, who did they turn to? They turned to you. Do you have any sense of what It was that you communicated to the other leaders of ACPE that led them to say, Cindy is the person to do this.
1: Maybe an inkling. Barry Silbaugh was president of ACPE right before me, and he was a mentor to me in many ways. He's a very soft-spoken man, a deep thinker almost a monk in some ways. I mean, he's just a reader and a thinker and a philosophizer. He said about me that I have grace under fire. So I think he believed that he knew it would be a tumultuous time and that they needed somebody with the grace to kind of work through the turbulence and make it through to the other side. Maybe that's it. I don't know.
0: Any lasting lessons that you take from your time at the helm of the ACPE that you have subsequently applied in other leadership roles?
1: Never give up. Just keep on trying because there were so many roadblocks and what felt like so many dead ends in that arduous process. But I think, you know, you just keep on keeping on and I would go to bed at night feeling so much anxiety and wake up in the morning and look at the problem with a whole different light. And the solutions come and don't let them bog you down too much because it comes to an end. That
0: anxiety that you just described, you know, getting into bed and thinking about these things, what strategies did you learn to sort of try to compartmentalize it and get a good night's sleep and be refreshed the next day?
1: I have been a fairly religious exerciser my whole adult life. I find great solace in going to the gym, doing aerobic exercise, lifting weights, a little bit of yoga. I've probably done that two or three times a week for 40 years. I enjoy it and it puts your mind in a place where you look at things with a little bit more equilibrium maybe. That's my greatest outlet. And then I think being with friends is a great way to kind of divorce yourself from the things that are going on. I love good food. I love good wine. I love to go to dinner with friends and just enjoy food and wine and conversation about politics or whatever it is you know is on the top of the frame. But I think that's helpful just to forget about what's going on and lose yourself in somebody else's issues.
0: During these years of growing engagement with the ACPE, you were also taking on larger leadership roles within your practice. You served as medical director and chair of radiology at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital for 10 years, and as an officer, including time as president of Radiology Associates of North Texas for 10 years. How did those growing roles in your practice and hospital evolve?
1: I was kind of fresh off the heels of my formal medical management education And I just had so many ideas. I was busting forth from the seams with great ideas to help our practice grow. And one of my dear friends, Ted Kerlock, was president of the group at that time. And it was kind of a loose executive committee. And, you know, we'd all sit around the table and go over to financials and kind of argue a little bit. And the squeaky wheel always prevailed. So I approached Ted one day and I said, Ted, I'd like to be president of the group. I'd like to take this group in a new direction. So it wasn't like somebody tapped me on the shoulder. This was a point in my time when I said, I really want to do this. So he was gracious enough to say, I'm not going to stand in your way and I'll help you. So I became president and I led the group through a complete reorganization. We changed our name from Dallas Radiologist PA to SIIS, Southwest Imaging and Interventional Specialist, because we wanted it to reflect a larger geographical area, and we wanted it to reflect the fact that we were doing interventional procedures as well. We still were only a body group, we weren't doing any neuro, but this reorganization gave us the opportunity to expand not just same store, but new stores. So we were looking for opportunities where we could add neuro to our book of business and we were looking for opportunities where we could be a part of the technical component as well. We had a few guiding principles like we were never going to do Medicare-only payments and we were never going to do a global bill and we were always going to keep our professional bill separate from the technical bill, but we wanted to get into that technical aspect. So We added a couple of places. We lost a couple of places during my time, but overall we grew and we added people to the group. During the early years of my presidency, I also did a reorganization of our corporate stature. We got the new name, we got a new logo, We got new bylaws, we got a way for grievances to be aired, we created a new mission and vision. I mean, we had a strategic plan. I brought in Larry Muroff at one point as a helper, and we devised a new strategic plan. I divided the group into three sections, loosely based on what Larry told us. You know, we had one part of the group that was handling the finances. We had one part of the group that was doing financing Anyway, we basically divided it up into three jobs and everyone in the group was on one of those committees and we had a chair of each of those committees. It was a time of rapid growth. The other project I undertook was a transition from an in-house mom-and-pop billing office to outsourcing and professional billing and collecting. And that was fun but difficult because we had a lot of employees that were managing every little bill that came in and out of our office. And we had a great office manager, but she spent probably 95% of her time on billing and collecting. So outsourcing that, we saved a lot of money, we got a better collection rate, and we were able to downsize our office and Pick people to run our office that were more geared toward building the business and growing the practice. A lot of changes that happened in those years that I was president, but I have to say they all turned out really, really fine. We built relationships with other groups in the area. In this area, there's like five big hospital systems. And so we were now big enough to have some clout with the big hospital systems in our geographic area. It was a really fascinating story to watch unfold. It was a great time.
0: Sounds amazing, you know, that you really had the vision to take the group in a fundamentally different direction that led to many successes in its growth. I'm curious the extent to which. You experienced any headwinds in those transitions. For a lot of folks, change is hard and inertia is a powerful force. And so what did you encounter from the standpoint of difficulty in pursuing your objectives and goals? And how did you address any headwinds that might present?
1: We were still a very democratically run group. So I would say that the hardest part was trying to convince everyone to get onto the same page because we would never go anywhere if there was really an obstructionist. So I think that that's one of the most important talents that a leader can have is to explain the situation, point out what the options are, why we wanna go in a certain direction and what it's gonna look like once you get there. So it's the whole thing of change management, you know, where to start, how to bring the psychology through that, What does the end look like? And recognize that it might be a little bit difficult in the middle, but we're going to be happier at the end of it. So I would say if there was ever any acrimony or difficult headwinds, it would be the time and the energy that it takes to talk to people enough so that they'll see what the future might look like and jump on the bandwagon.
0: Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital is part of a large health system called Texas Health Resources, which currently has 25 hospitals and 350 outpatient locations. I see that back in 2000, you founded a physician leadership council for THR, and served as its founding chair for two years. What were you seeking to accomplish by establishing that council?
1: This was a point in time in Dallas medical politics where Baylor University Medical Center and Texas Health Resources were attempting to merge. So that would have created really a giant healthcare system in the North Texas area. But making the very long story short, the merger fell apart. So this was at a point in time when Texas Health Resources was kind of regrouping, you know, saying to themselves, we're not going to be part of this mega hospital system. We're going to be who we are. We have to look into the future. How are we going to move forward? So we were 14 hospitals at that time. One of the things that came out of the merger talks was that at Baylor, they had a physician leadership group. They had a voice into the hospital corporate office that we didn't have at Texas Health Resources. We were 14 silo hospitals and never did one ever talk to another one. So the corporate office just kind of ran everything. So it was my idea after the merger fell apart to recreate Baylor's Physician Leadership Group, and we called it at Texas Health Resources the Physician Leadership Council. And I have to give credit to the then CEO. His name was Doug Hawthorne, and he had a long, great run at Texas Health Resources. He's really responsible for growing it into the big system that it is now. He embraced the concept. He thought it was a great idea. He loved what they were doing at Baylor and thought, we can reproduce it in our own image at Texas Health Resources. And As they looked around for someone to chair it and put it together, somebody from one of the other hospitals says, I nominate Dr. Sherry. And Doug looked at me and he said, Cindy, do you want to do this? And, you know, how do you say no? I mean, what a great opportunity. So I spent a couple of years pulling together the medical staffs from 14 different hospitals. We would get together in person. The council pretty much consisted of the president and vice president of the medical staff at each of the 14 hospitals. So again, we put together a mission and a vision. We put together our bylaws. We hired some staff. We learned, you know, what are the ways, what are the roads we can take to interface with our corporate office to make it a better place for physicians to work in order to better serve our patients. So, I mean, it was just like, this is bread and butter. This is apple pie and hot dogs. This is like the best you can do. And I have to say that after serving on that organization for two years as the founding chair, and then as just a member I love the fact that it still exists today. And they are so deeply entwined now with the corporate office that the corporate office and the physician organization, they're making decisions together all of the time for all of these hospitals. They've actually created another arm that's actually a policy arm, and they set policy for the hospitals, for the corporate office. So you know, this was a time when safety and quality and to air is human and, you know, crossing the quality chasm, all of these things were so important and on the tip of everybody's tongue. So it was a great time for the doctors to get together and create their influential role within the corporate office.
0: It sounds like a very empowering initiative. And what I'm gathering is that it really was essentially initiated from a top-down perspective, but was allowed to evolve bottom-up.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. It had to have the blessing of the CEO and the corporate office, obviously. We weren't going to do this without them. But it grew from the physicians. I mean, we put it together. When we met, we had just a couple of the corporate people with us, and they would take it back to the whole office. And so we built it as the doctors. It was a great experience and a great time.
0: At that time, were all of the physicians essentially in private practice or were some employed?
1: Virtually all of them were in private practice at that point in time. Texas Health Resources now does have a big physician group that they employ, but they didn't really have it at that time. They had a fledgling organization of a few primary care doctors that were out in the suburbs that grew into the now large Texas Health Physician Group, which is primary care plus specialty care.
0: Talk a little bit about your perspective on radiologists as leaders of all physicians. And, you know, what sorts of things do you see as being characteristics of radiology practice and the sensibility of radiologists that make them successful within the context of those roles?
1: Radiologists clearly have a central role in healthcare economics, and we touch so many Patients that are in the hospital, we touch so many patients that are in the outpatient realm. We've evolved from someone who sits behind the view box all day to a specialty that interfaces with patients face-to-face, interventional, for example, and breast imaging, and a lot of women's imaging, especially. We do have a tendency to get stuck behind closed doors and become a little bit isolated, but it's just one of those constant yings and yangs. I mean, it's what we do. We have to do that. We have to take the time to read studies. But we also have to make time for ourselves to get out there and grow our role from just a film reader and doctor consultant into something that's helping to direct and guide the direction that healthcare takes.
0: Having had such diverse leadership roles, many of them that you founded for physicians as a group, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit on your perspective on the unique capabilities and competencies that physicians can bring as leaders within healthcare organizations and the balance of physician leadership with non-physician leadership and what have you seen and particularly for those physicians who feel that they're part of an organization where they don't have a sufficient voice how do you advise them to take on a larger role?
1: I was very fortunate in my career path that when I was president of the hospital you know just throw out there that the hospital was 40 years old at that point and I was the first woman to be president of the medical staff. Okay. So it was definitely male dominated. But the president of the hospital then was, you know, a healthcare administrator and he was a man that was close to my age. He was just a little bit older than me. And his background in life was similar to mine. So we shared the chronological view of healthcare, and we shared some background things, and we got to be good friends. And so it was really, really fun to see and learn from him how to run a big hospital like that. He was kind of a micromanager, and I learned how that can be a fault by watching him. In some ways, it's a real positive, but in other ways, it really held him back. But he was open with me with all the hospital finances. And this was a point in time when I was at Carnegie Mellon. So I was really interested in how the hospital runs. And I learned a lot about what the role radiology plays as a cost center or a profit center, however you want to look at it. But I think that working with him was a real plus that influenced my attitude and outlook on healthcare economics and how radiologists can play a role. I think that some of the strengths that radiologists have is that they're not afraid of technology. In fact, they're really good at it. And I think that they do have to interact with all of the different medical specialties. Probably there's no other medical specialty with as large a fund of medical knowledge as a radiologist, We may not know all of the treatment pathways, but we sure know a lot about the background and the pathophysiology of it. I think that if a radiologist is trained with business and management education, that they have a natural pathway to be involved in hospital management and success.
0: Did you ever consider that you might want to pivot into hospital management?
1: No, that never really appealed to me. You have my CV, so you can see that the last role I had was chief medical education officer for Texas Health Resources. And I did not hold that role for very long. I'm not a corporate person. (laughs) You know, I just feel like the constraints of working in an office and having a boss were just too much for me. And maybe a lot of doctors feel the same way, especially radiologists. We're just independent thinkers. So there were parts of that that I really liked. But as a general rule, no. I did not flourish in that role.
0: In 2011, you became the medical director and founding chair of the Radiology Leadership Institute of the American College of Radiology. Of course, the RLI sponsors this podcast and has contributed a breadth of leadership education and training over the past decade. And I feel privileged to have served on the board during your time of founding the organization and your leadership. Take us through the origin story of the RLI. How did it come about and what role did you play in its founding?
1: Well, I was at the juncture in my career where I felt like physician leadership education was really, really very important, and it was something that was lacking in the radiology world, especially in the ACR, and that was my primary connection to organized radiology was the ACR. I wasn't very much involved in many other radiology organizations, but ACR was the one I was connected to. I remember I was probably on the council steering committee, and I was invited to a cocktail hour, I think at a point in time when Jim Thrall was just finishing his presidency. And I walked into his suite, and he was standing there to greet me. And I said, hey, you know, I have this great idea about leadership education for radiologists. And he smiled and looked down at me and he said, tell me about your idea. And, you know, unknown to me, Van Moore had already been talking to Jim Thrall about leadership education for radiologists. And it just kind of dovetailed that he was thinking the same thing when I approached him and brought up the subject. And it wasn't long after that when he called me on the telephone and he said, Cindy, this is Jim Thrall. And I'm like, what? Who? Who? Jim Thrall calling me? What? (laughs) Anyway, it really was him, and he said, I would like to invite you to join the board of chancellors on this commission, and I want you to spearhead the concept of radiology leadership education, and I said, well, can I think about it, and I'll call you back. Anyway, I thought about it, and I thought, what an opportunity this is, so that was probably in 2009, I think, if I have the dates right, So it took almost a year for me to actually end up on the board. So I spent that year doing a deep dive into what kind of physician leadership education is out there. Who are the leaders in physician leadership education out there? How do I translate that into radiology? How do I appeal to academic radiologists and private practice radiologists? How are we going to encourage them to work it into their busy schedule? So a lot of footwork was done with a lot of radiologists. Harvey Neiman, he was just invaluable. Priceless, his input, his belief in it, the way he spearheaded it. And then the staff members, you know, Ron Friedman, he got on board with the concept early on. Anne-Marie Pasco joined after that. I have to tell you that the strength of ACR, Harvey Neiman, the staff, the other radiologists, it was just an amazing confluence of a whole bunch of good ideas coming together and talent to pull it off. And honestly, I didn't know you But you ended up on the original board. I don't think I'd ever met you. But Harvey said, oh, yeah, you got to have Jeff Rubin. He's going to be a great addition. I said, Harvey, whatever you say. So basically, the original board was picked by Harvey Neiman. And I was just so pleased with the people that he brought together and the different perspectives that they all brought to the table. And I remember how much we struggled with some of the minutiae, you know, the common body of knowledge and 151 different competencies and the seven different spheres of influence. You know, we really took a deep dive, didn't we?
0: Yeah. Well, you were amazing. An amazing leader with such vision and such energy. I learned so much from you as a leader of that board and that transformation. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about, you know, what was your vision for the RLI at its founding? What did you hope for it to achieve at that moment in time?
1: I guess if I had a long-term vision, it would have been taken from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, Level 5 Leadership, you know, the idea that we could get an ongoing and continuing pipeline of people in radiology that were on various stages of the leadership curve and that we would ultimately end up with a large number of Level 5 leaders in our specialty That would take the organization, take the whole realm of radiology to new levels, that they would march out like an army and populate leadership roles in all the different spheres of medicine, and that we wouldn't be confined to just the reading rooms in the radiology department. I guess I had a bigger picture of the physician population that we operate within, and so I really did have a bigger view of radiology just spreading themselves out into the physician world the hospital world, the healthcare world, insurance companies, everything.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a perspective that is very consistent with your leadership journey and the roles that you have played. And I think it's a marvelous vision and one that the RLI continues to pursue and encouraging radiologists to take on the breadth of leadership roles and giving them the tools to do so is a fantastic mission. Amongst radiologists, who do you believe specifically benefits from leadership training? Is there a phenotype? How do you advise a young radiologist who comes up to you and says, should I get involved? Should I take my time to do leadership training with the RLI?
1: I think that a lot of people that I encourage to go into leadership roles are the ones that I feel are motivated for reasons that coincide with mine, I guess, and I'll just go back to the same thing. I don't see serving in leadership roles as a way to build a CV or a resume. I think you need to be motivated to do the work and have a vision And a lot of radiologists do. I mean, they're not afraid to tackle a tough job, but there are some who, for good reasons, want to just come in, read their studies, and go home. And we won't flourish as a specialty if that's what everyone does. So those people who are motivated for the right reasons to be a servant leader, I encourage wholeheartedly, just don't say no. If a problem interests you, don't be afraid to say, yes, I want to get involved
0: you've used the term servant leader a couple of times and sometimes i think folks look at that term or hear that term and think it somehow implies a level of passivity where you know you're looking to do what others need you to do and that you are being a servant in principle is almost a passive type role talk us through the active engagement in leadership and driving an organization from the perspective of being a servant leader?
1: I think of it from the perspective of if you're the leader. You can't assume control and command, you know, just tell people what to do, hey, follow me, because they're not going to follow you unless you come up with a persuasive story that depicts what your vision looks like and that they can see what's at the end of it if you just do the work in the middle. So when I say servant leadership, I'm thinking of, I have a vision of what the future looks like and it's better than what we have right now. And if I can convey that to you, you're going to agree with me and you're going to follow and we're going to all get there together. So I don't think of it as command and control as much as I think of it as describe your vision and describe how we're going to get there and why we want to get there and why we want to go through the hard parts to do it. That's kind of what I mean when I say servant leadership. Yeah. Well articulated.
0: Looking back on the ROI after 10 years, what brings you the greatest sense of pride in its founding?
1: I love what it turned into. I loved it when I left, but when I look at it now, I just love the way it evolved. I love, I don't know, the way it spread out into so many different directions at a point in time when it was hard. I mean, we were budget cuts and You know, changes of leadership. We had COVID. But I love the fact that it exists today. But more than that, I love the form that it exists in today. And I may follow it at arm's length, but I'm lurking. I'm watching to see what became of it after I left.
0: Your career has been marked by periods of deep engagement with professional organizations such as the ACPE and the ACR and the Dallas County Medical Society and Texas Medical Association, to name just a few. Once your leadership term is completed within an organization, how do you approach finding your next activity?
1: Well, this is probably a good time to talk about the direction it took after R.L.I., Well, I was always interested in education, but I became even more interested in it. And that's why I ended up with that chief medical education role. And one of the things I tried to get started was Schwartz Rounds at our hospital. So palliative care, end-of-life care some of the ethical considerations that medicine and physicians face every day, and it's just growing and growing and getting to be a bigger issue. So my interest kind of pivoted toward ethics of medicine. And in my role as the president of Dallas County Medical Society, one of the big efforts that we undertook was we have 600,000 indigent people in the Dallas area, and Parkland has the capacity to take care of about half of those. So What is our role as a doctor's organization to help take care of these people who don't have healthcare? And so we spent a lot of time with the CMS waiver RFP and tried to convert a small existing Project Access Dallas into a larger waiver project, and we failed. But I have to tell you, the effort was wonderful, and we actually took a visit to CMS headquarters in Baltimore and had interviews with those people, not because we wanted to change their mind, because we accepted that we couldn't, but we wanted to learn, what were they thinking? I mean, we felt like we had hit off every bullet point that they were asking for, and how did we fail? And basically, you know, their answer was, well, you weren't big enough. We're looking for bigger projects. And really, some of those things we talked about, like transparency and accountable care, those are things for the future, not right now. And thirdly, why aren't you as an organization of doctors more politically plugged in so that you could have gotten your people in Dallas to get on board with you? It was an enlightening experience on how doctors have their hands tied in caring for the indigent population in the Dallas area. You know, from the Dallas County Medical Society, which actually is the second largest county medical society in the country and larger than most state organizations. I mean, it's big and it's well populated and people are involved. So if anyone could have done this, they could have, but we failed. And then in the Texas Medical Association, I I chaired their council on health service organizations, and the major thrust of everything we talked about and did had to do with end-of-life legislation. Again, what's a radiologist doing at these conversations? But I have to tell you, that was just the direction that my interest went and my career went. And so I tried as hard as I could to help the leaders in our state, Bob Fine and Stuart Pakel, tried to get physician orders for life-sustaining treatments, you know, at the out-of-hospital DNR, and tried to get all that stuff in place. And my time doing that came to an end before we actually accomplished it. But we made a little headway, and that's all you can really ask for sometimes. And that kind of brings me to resignation retirement, whatever you want to call it, because in 2014, that's basically what I did. And at that point in time, I became a study in burnout and learned a lot about myself at that particular point in time. And if you look at burnout as something where the stresses and anxiety of your life, work life, home life, whatever it is, stresses and anxieties of life become greater than your outlets can help you deal with them. And so I wouldn't say that I was too stressed out at work. Maybe I was in a job that wasn't as gratifying as I'd hoped it would be. But there are circumstances that happen in any individual's personal life, aging parents, family members who are sick, maybe a personal illness occurs. And I just found myself in that cliche situation where those stresses of my personal life pretty much overtook my ability to cope. You know, in retrospect, I look back and I wish I had done something a little more temporizing than just throw up my hands and quit and walk away. I'm still a radiologist. I go to the hospital. I sit behind the view box and I read cases and interact with the physicians on the medical staff. And I have to say that, you know, I'm kind of back to my roots. I love doing that. So, that's how my career rounded
0: out. Fantastic. And so many lessons in all of that. And, you know, there's different times and different stages for different activities. And the fact that you're back to your roots is inspiring in many ways. I wonder if you think about seeing yourself, you know, potentially rallying for something new at this moment or Are you content to continue realizing the role of being essentially a senior statesman and following the path that led you into the field?
1: I am content right now, Jeff. I love looking back on my career and seeing the RLI continuing in the form that it's in. I love looking back at ACPE and seeing what form that's in. The Physician Leadership Council at Texas Health Resources, I love watching what they're doing. One of the things we didn't talk about was the Physician's Lead Program, which I started up in our hospital at Dallas just for our medical staff, kind of in conjunction with ACPE, brought in some speakers, and that still exists, only now it's on the whole health system basis and they're turning out leaders every six months or something they start a new cohort and it's just very gratifying to be at a point in my career where I can say yeah yeah I did some things and I feel good about it but now I'm back to my roots I love reading about current things going on in radiology I love sitting at the view box. I love interacting with the clinicians. So I feel like my career just came full circle. It's been wonderful.
0: Early on, you were describing all of these activities that you did when you were growing up the skiing and the skating and the golfing. Do you find yourself taking advantage of your interests in aspects outside of radiology? How do you spend your leisure time these days?
1: Golfing mostly. If the weather permits it, you know, these 100 degree days don't really permit golf very often, but if you get out there early enough, it's pretty nice golfing and traveling. We recently sold our big house and downsized to something that's a little smaller in a zero lot line gated community, you know, the lock and leave mentality. And you wouldn't have thought so, but in this small enclave, I've made some great friends outside of radiology, outside of the healthcare system. And I have to say that having friends like that has been really fun. We play Mahjong, you know, we get together for happy hour. I don't know. It seems like every time I turn around, there's something fun to do.
0: That's terrific. And family?
1: Yes. I have a daughter, Sarah, who is in her mid thirties, married, lives in the suburb of Dallas Plano and works for an insurance company. And she's just the love of my life. She is adopted. So I can't really take credit for this, but I like to tell people she was born with a compass that points north. I mean, this girl knew right from wrong from, you know, right out of the hopper. I don't know how she did it, but she lives her life in a way that she always knows what the right thing to do is. And I really admire that about her, love that about her. I have two stepchildren. They're certainly grown adults and they have children too. We have a pretty big family now and we do a few family vacations, probably one each year.
0: That's really nice. I can't help but think that your daughter's compass is strongly guided by the magnetic field that you and your husband have provided.
1: Maybe so. My husband's a great guy too. and We haven't really mentioned him, but he's retiring this year after 50 years at the University of Texas. So we have a new chapter opening up right now.
0: That's really exciting. What plans do you have for the new chapter?
1: Mostly, we're going to try to travel more. About five years ago, we built a house up on Lake Texoma, which is part of the Red River at the borderline between Oklahoma and Texas. And it's in a small community that has a marina, and it has an 18-hole Jack Nicholas golf course that's absolutely gorgeous. Right now, we go up most weekends and spend the weekend up there. We'll probably end up spending more time up there once he retires.
0: Sounds very nice. Well-deserved and well-earned. One last question. What advice would you give to a young physician who is inspired by your journey and would like to pursue leadership?
1: Once again, the whole concept of don't pick your leadership roles based on your CV, but pick them based on what motivates you and what lights the fire and where you have the fire in your belly. And to stay true to the values that brought you into the medical field in the first place. It's a little bit of altruism. It's a concern for putting patients first and the physician-patient relationship first and integrity. So I would say stay true to your values and take leadership roles that motivate you because of the heart of what those are.
0: Well, Dr. Cynthia Sherry, thank you so much for sharing your rich leadership journey with us today. You have really explored fascinating dimensions of leadership and have left a lasting legacy for many of us in radiology and many who have yet to come through establishing the programs that you have in leadership training and education. I am so happy that we have had this time to talk today on Taking the Lead.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff, for giving me the opportunity to talk. I truly enjoyed talking with you, and I hope I'll see you at the summit.
0: That you will. Please join me next month when I speak with Kurt Schoppe. Who follows Dr. Sherry as the next generation of leaders at Radiology Associates of North Texas. He will soon serve as president-elect of the over 200 radiologists practice in Fort Worth. He also serves locally as chair of the Department of Radiology at the John Peter Smith Hospital. An abdominal imager and interventionalist, Dr. Shapi has distinguished himself at the national level with the American College of Radiology as the ACR's advisor to the Relative Value Update Committee of the American Medical Association and as chair of the Reimbursement and Practice Expense Committees of the ACR's Economics Commission. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, senior director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Cacall for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N, or using the hashtag R-L-I Taking the Lead. Alternatively, send us an email at R-L-I at I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.